look for the successful attributes of what makes a really successful, sustainable product, not in the app itself, but in the user. What is it about successful users? That's where we're going to look. So we're going to compete on user awesome, not on app awesome. Because competing on how fabulous our app is, that's fragile. And this is the saddest Venn diagram. Because this is usually what's happening. So the company is constantly trying to care about their, about the, how the users perceive them and their products. Meanwhile, the user doesn't care so much about how people feel about you. They care about what they're able to accomplish. So the bar for competing on App Awesome is a lot higher. Now, that doesn't mean that there are a lot of awesome products out there, but people are trying to compete on how we have the best product. No, we have the best product. No, ours is the best. Ours is the coolest. And not a lot of competition for who's making the user the best at whatever it is you're helping them do. And I'm using the word badass because it's harder to misinterpret. Badass means the user really has to be really good at something. So we're going to design for badass. That's you. That's your competitor. Or maybe you can switch them. So that's your product, competitor's products. But none of that is what matters, because what matters is this. What is the bigger context that your products are a subset of? And that's the place where badass lives. That's what the users are really trying to accomplish. right? They don't necessarily want to be good at your tool. What are they using your tool to do? What does it enable? So I'm going to use these two concepts of the context, which is why they're actually using it, the thing they're hoping to achieve, what are you a subset of, and then tool to mean whatever it is that your product is that you offer. So context and tool. And we want to focus on helping our users become badass, not at our tool, which again, that's not their goal. Their goal is to um, become more enabled, more powerful, more skillful at whatever that context is. This is the slide that I've devoted my life to. I've been showing it for years, although I've had to update it. Um, this is the problem. Marketing is all about the compelling context. Right? We know what might motivate people and draw them into actually wanting to have our product. And then, as soon as they give us money, which in this case was like $2,500, that's what they get. We're all about the tool after they become our customer. So our users want to be badass at the context, not just the tool. So here's a way to think about it. Don't make a better X. Make a better user of X. Now, it's really easy to look at this and say, isn't that really the same thing? I mean, if you're making a great product, isn't the whole point of a great product to help the user be great? But if you actually look really hard and focus really hard on what does it take to make the user awesome, you may make very different choices. And I've seen companies have like a 50% shift in their features once they really focused on making the user awesome, not how great the product looked. So your up and to the right has to match theirs. And if you imagine that your up and to the right is based entirely on their up and to the right, if the goal is for a sustainable, durable, robust, long-term 
successful company, not just a you know quick Silicon Valley hit. So remember, this is what we want. This is how we're going to get there. That's what we're going to create. So the point of view is designed for the post UX UX because all that matters is what happens after they're done clicking, swiping, and this is an exercise that you can just put yourself through is imagine that you are making a documentary of your user. And you're literally following them around, and you're seeing what they do after they stop and walk away from using your product. What happens? What do they show? What do they have to, to talk about with other people? What have they now accomplished? How do they feel? What happens next? How quickly do they come back? How much more do they want to do? So those are the things that we have to focus on. What happens after they're done interacting? Because if they're going to talk about it or, or just demonstrate to someone else that they are more capable and more powerful as a result, it's going to happen as a result of whatever they do when they walk away. So the wrong question is, what did we enable? What can they do? The right question is, what do they actually do? Because we tend to take a lot of responsibility for what they can do. Well. You know, all these features and capabilities are in the product, but we don't take responsibility as much for what they actually do. So badass is about what they do, and in fact, it's about what they do reliably over and over again. So remember, if they just do one outrageous thing, it's a jackass, not a badass. So badass takes three things, and these are the three things that I went over at a high level in my other um, presentations. So if you're interested in the top two, um, I would recommend going back to the one that I did uh, 2013 at Business of Software, because the one we're going to focus on now is this one. So we need to keep people motivated to move forward. So we're going to talk about motivation. Now, what happens when you want to talk about motivation? What happens when we want to think about motivation? Right? Here are all the ways that we can think about motivation. Maslow's hierarchy, the ARCS model. It goes on and on. Oh, that's the player types, which the gamification people added badges to. And therefore, one guy said, no, we should have six. That's called the HEX model. And another gamification consultant said, well, no, um, we need eight. That's the octalysis model that will blow your mind. And then this one ends with the gun, which I thought was appropriate. So there's so many complicated ways of uh, looking at what motivates an individual person and categorizing all of our users into these different types based on whatever it is that they want. And there is a way to really, really simplify this. And we're going to look at the two types of motivation, two main motivation theories. And if we understand these, then it becomes a lot easier to make choices for what our users will do. So it's just operant conditioning, which is BF Skinner, which I'm sure most of you remember, but we'll go into some details about that, and then self-determination theory. So these are the two main theories. But before we go, some context to keep in mind. So we're going to look at a little bit about how we're going to use this, and then we'll come back and get into the theories. So remember the path to badass. This is kind of how we look at it. Well, there's a motivation magnet pulling them along this journey. But we also have derailers. So something is pulling them off. Now, we're making the assumption that they are motivated or were motivated at one time for the 
compelling context at the end. Yeah, they wanted to be better at photography. They wanted to be better at whatever it is that they're using your software to do. So what do most people do? Well, to compensate for the user being pulled off or derailed, we go, let's add more motivation. So what we really mean is let's add more persuasion, more seduction. Let's try to entice them further. But that's not the real problem. They're already motivated. This isn't a persuasion problem. They're motivated, but something is stopping them. So that's going to be our real secret weapon, is while everyone's focused on how to keep pulling them and motivating them and seducing them, we're going to look at what's stopping the motivation that they already have or had. Something is blocking them. What are those things? That's what we're going to focus on. Because remember, this is about sustainable success. We want this. So we have to have that. And that won't happen unless he keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So we have to have that continued motivation. So two big derailers. Remember this? So here's the first derailer. Users are really motivated by the compelling context. Yeah, I want that. That's awesome. That would be great. Yes, I'll buy your software. And then they buy the software, and then this happens. Suddenly, except this actually happens much earlier, Suddenly now, it's all about the tool. All the support, all the help, everything they're surrounded by now is just the tool. So there's this big disconnect between the compelling context that they wanted and now the experience they're having, which is the tool. And another big one, any snowboarders in here? Skiers? Oh, okay, okay, yes. All right, so, and if you're a skier who tried snowboarding, you might have found out that's even worse. So. Um, so this is the compelling context. Yes, I'll, it'll, I'll be flying. It'll be awesome. And then the first day of snowboarding is like this. So that's how a lot of our users feel using our software. So we have to figure out what to do. I mean, that is going to happen. right? And you may have software. In fact, if you have um, complex software that's doing something really powerful, we can't feel bad about having software that might be complex and powerful. Sometimes this is going to happen. We have to figure out how to help them um, overcome that. Not necessarily to try to somehow make it easier. We have to make the hard stuff more tolerable so they don't lose as much motivation. So again, they didn't actually lose their motivation for the ultimate compelling context. They just stopped believing that it's going to happen, that there's any connection between what they're doing now and what they're left with and what they're actually going to get to. So they want to believe that this is just a step along the way, not something that's going to actually derail them. And you all have things that you have tried to do that you wanted to actually really be good at and master and just didn't. And something pulled you off, something that may have told you this is just, it's never going to be worth it. This is so difficult. And it would have been better if you could have just had enough faith that, no, this was just a step along the way, and I'll get through it. So before we get into the, the deep motivation, this is just emergency motivation to help with that. So one of our big problems is that we pretend that that's not happening. We pretend like the user is not actually having that experience, the gap of suck, the gap of bitter disillusion. I mean, we did our part. So this is our mythical user. 
right? We, we pretend like this is our user. He sits down to use the software, and he's so relaxed and happy. It's great. And there he is with his credit card, which is even better. This is our mythical user. He's having a great experience, and he's just always happy because his whole life is happy. So this is how we create the product we, with that assumption when this is our actual user. <laughs> so we have to figure out how to deal with that. So one of our problems is that we often act as though it's easier than it actually is because we don't acknowledge that. Or we acknowledge, yes, it's hard, but read the manual. You know, it's the user's responsibility. I mean, we can't actually hold their hand and help them do it. So again, <laughs> if it's really hard, then we make this assumption. This is a good user. This is the user that we want. This is the actual user that we have. So we have to figure out what to do. This is what happens, though. This is the best case scenario, is that the user is struggling, and the user says, oh, an idiot, right? He blames himself. But often, they're also blaming us. So the problem is not that we gave them this manual that may be really difficult and dry and goes nowhere near the materials that marketing promised. This is really not so much the problem. I mean, people are used to this. The problem is that we treat them as though, well, everyone else is fine with the manual. So we act like they're the idiots. And if we just acknowledged that, yes, this is difficult, this is a problem, you're not an idiot. So the two sweetest words that a user can hear when they're struggling, and hopefully before they start struggling, is that this is typical, this is temporary. There's nothing wrong with you. This is how it is. So they really need to know. What they really need to know is that you understand, that you have a clue about what they're going through. But. We often create our software and support as though when they have a problem, again, it's their fault. It's not something that's to be expected. So imagine that you were to create a UI or whatever you might have that reflects how they're actually feeling. Because this is not what the user is actually feeling when he's struggling. So what would you do? to create something in your product or even in your support that reflects what he's actually going through so that he knows you get it. So you could add a button. And there was a, um, a product called Wasabi. It was a financial management piece of software for consumers. And in fact, they added an I'm freaking out button. And um, the CEO of that company said that button was the one thing that people said over and over again. Just the fact that you had that button was such a huge relief to me because it told me it's obviously a normal thing to be freaking out. They have a button for it. Now, um, uh, the Kindle Fire, the new one, has the Mayday button. Do any of you have this? That Kindle that has the Mayday button? I don't. I haven't even seen it except in video. But it has a Mayday button that you can click on, and then you get instant support. And just a few days ago, Amazon said now 75% of their customer contacts from that device are coming through that Mayday button. And they said um, that the 
the customer service people get all kinds of requests, like, can you help me with this Angry Birds level, you know, whatever it is. But, so make sure they know that struggling is normal. Don't be in denial about it. You know, it's, sometimes people say, well, I don't want to plant the seed that this is hard, right? You're not planting the seed. They already know. So we can just try to tell them to relax about it. They want to believe that it's just a step. So we can just tell them. We can just say, this is hard. And one of the best programming books that I've ever seen, it's on um, Objective-C, and the, the opening page says, this is going to be hard. Now, now we're going to get to the long-term sustainable. So now we're going to talk about operant conditioning and self-determination theory. Now, part of what I want you to keep in mind is that they are at opposite ends, intrinsic motivation and external consequences. These two things are at opposite ends of a motivation scale. And we'll see what that means a little bit later, what it means that they're on opposite ends. So we'll start with operant conditioning. Um, operant conditioning, how many of you remember operant conditioning from your B.F. Skinner from Psych 101? Okay, so it's all based on consequences. Right? And he did, in fact, train pigeons to do missile guidance. They never actually had to be deployed to, to guide those missiles, which is good for the pigeons. But he was able to train them to do seemingly complex behaviors, although really they were just simple behaviors, but in a very long chain. And so it's the classic thing where the rat learns to you know, push the bar and I get a pellet. Um, don't do this thing over here and uh, you know, the floor is shocked, whatever it might be. So, consequences. And almost all animal t training today is operant conditioning. But as you'll see, so is most school, most parenting, most employer-employee relationships, and often the relationships that we have with our customers is actually barely disguised operant conditioning. This apparently was a real thing. He really did think that you could put babies in Skinner boxes as well, but okay. So I need a volunteer real quick. Someone who's just willing to just stand up here with me for a few minutes. It'll be really easy, I promise. Awesome. Okay. okay. Good observation. Great punch. So, operant conditioning has four, you don't have to do anything for a moment, just hang out. Operant conditioning has these four quadrants. Now, in the two columns, we have reinforcement and punishment. For increasing behavior through reinforcement, decreasing or stopping behavior through punishment. Then we have these two rows with a plus sign and a minus sign, and which we also use the, the term positive and negative, which is really a problem because it, it negative sounds, you know, negative, bad, and positive sounds good, and that's not what they mean. The plus and minus just means that you're doing something by adding or taking something away. So in the reinforcement column, this is for behavior that we want, we have positive reinforcement because we add something, and we have negative reinforcement, which means we reinforce doing a behavior by taking something annoying away. And then we have, and I'm going to show you a little demonstration of that in a minute. I'm going to annoy you. So then we have um, positive punishment and negative punishment. Now again, positive punishment is not the good kind, right? It's the worst kind, because it means you add something. You add punishment. Negative punishment just means you take something away and that is the punishment, that you've removed something good. 
So I'm going to use these terms because these are the most common terms that we use. Plus R minus R, plus P minus P, but that plus R is the one to focus on because that's the one that, um, that we're often focused on with our customers especially. So these three are the ones that are used for almost all animal training and again, other things as well. And you'll see, it'll start to look familiar. But first, I'm going to pretend that you're a horse. And <laughs> Good, excellent. Stop. Okay, so actually, I'm going to show you how easy this is. Okay, so imagine that I'm holding a treat. And I'm going to take a step back, and I want you to take a step forward. Good job, here's a treat. Okay, so I added something to reinforce the behavior, right? How many of you have dogs that you've ever trained with a treat? Right, okay. So this is the obvious one, although it's going to get complicated in a minute. Negative reinforcement. This is the one we use most often with horses, but we also use it with dogs, and it'll start to feel familiar if you've ever been an employee. So, or a <laughs> child of parents. So now, I want you to move over, but you don't really want to, so resist me. So I'm just like annoying you, I'm tapping, I'm tapping, I'm tapping, I'm tapping, and finally you step over, and I release. That's negative reinforcement, because I have subtracted the annoying pressure, and that was the reinforcement that you did the right thing. Now, you'll see a lot of people go, reward the horse for doing the right thing. Well, you know, we've removed pressure, that's not actually a reward, but we like to call it that. Now, positive P, I won't put you through that. That just means you did something I didn't like, so I just whack you, whatever it is. Negative P, we don't normally use with horses. Some people use it with dogs. We use it a lot with kids. Just imagine for a second that you're a kid, and you did something wrong. You didn't clean your room. Hand over the iPad. Okay, so that's negative punishment because we've punished by removing something good. Horses don't really have anything that we could take away that they would make a connection to. They're not interested in our attention the way dogs are. Dogs sometimes you can just ignore them and then that's a, you've taken your attention away, that's punishment. So, now, stay here, not done with you. Um, one of the things that's a big problem is when people mix quadrants. And some of the behavioral scientists for um, especially with animal training, but again, all this is true for humans. Um, it tells us what might happen when we mix quadrants, and we usually do. So what it looks like is, um, I'm going to start annoying you to move over. Keep resisting, keep resisting, keep resisting. Okay, I, you're not listening, you're not listening, you're not listening. Whack! Now I punished her for not listening. Oh, and here's a reward. So now I've just used all three. So I added plus P, positive punishment, because of the, I wanted to stop the behavior of not listening. I escalated all the way up. And then I gave her a reward. This causes all kinds of problems, including things like resentment. And um, uh, some of the behavioral scientists are calling this a poison cue. When you actually use rewards in combination with something that's not optional, that you're putting pressure on, and that you might even possibly punish them for doing it. So it would be far better if I just said, you know what, this is something you have to do. You just don't have a choice. Uh, and maybe it's dangerous if you don't do this. I'm sorry, you have to do it. The best thing for me to do is to not give a reward. Because I've just blown the reward added all kinds of resentment, right? Like when your boss puts a huge amount of pressure on you, not saying any of you do this to your employees, and huge amount of pressure, 
meet the deadline, meet the deadline. And, and the employees know there is no option. We have to. But then they get a reward for doing it, right? Usually that's not a happy experience of a reward. So it gets a little bit complicated. Now, reinforcement schedules are something that you've, I'm sure, heard about. And reinforcement schedules are how often do we give the rewards. So I'm going to ask you to take a step forward, give you a treat. Now, step forward, didn't give you a treat. <laughs> give you a treat, right, 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 just in time. So, <laughs> which is actually turns out to be really important because if you get that wrong, if you get that wrong with the horse, they just diss you and walk away or kick you or whatever. So, um, the reinforcement schedules, what they found is that intermittent variable rewards, once the animal's actually learned, right? In the beginning, you want to just do the highest reinforcement you can every single time you take even the slightest attempt at a step. I'm going to reinforce that because that's teaching you what I actually wanted. But once that's happened, to use that for motivation, they found that intermittent variable rewards are far more motivating. It has to do with the whole way the, the dopamine reward system kicks in in the brain. Um, so intermittent variable rewards versus absolutely guaranteed regular rewards. So 50% rewards that are unexpected one time and then not for three and then two just in time. Um, is more powerful than actually every single reward, even though it's fewer rewards. So that's reinforcement schedules. Now, this looks familiar. Animal training, classrooms work this way. Most employee-employer relationships ultimately come down to some form of this, but it also is the entire internet. The entire internet is nothing but intermittent variable reward. There might be another cat picture. Uh, there might be a tweet. There might be a like. There might be. So this is, this is one of the reasons that it's so compelling, right? We, we never know when there's going to be that, that next tweet, that next like, that next whatever it is. So I'm almost done with you. Now, positive reinforcement out of all the quadrants, it has some unique characteristics. And by the way, most animal trainers don't recommend plus P or human trainers. Plus P, which is adding punishment, whack, because it has, it works, it's very effective, but it has side effects. And those side effects can be very negative, including the animal does exactly what you want every single time until the day it explodes. So um, usually adding punishment because of the side effects, it's not worth it. Um, now, but plus R also has very unique characteristics, and that's why we tend to think that it's the thing we should use. So. Um, one of the things I can do with plus R that I can't do any other way, right? If I do pressure, think about this with your kids, your employees. If I do pressure until you move over, right? I'm never going to get more than that behavior until I ask for more, right? There's no incentive. There's no reason I haven't even communicated to you that you should do more. I mean, why would you keep doing more? But how many of you have seen your dog start going through all of its tricks, hoping it's finding the right one, right? Sit, lay down, jump, you know, high five. It's, it's looking for what one will trigger the reward. So that's the benefit you get from plus R. You get this seeking behavior where they're actually trying things, and you will get more than just phoning it in, or at least we hope. So the problem is, OK, now you're a horse. So I'm going to lead you. Imagine there's a jump right here. And I'm going to lead you over, and I want you to jump the jump. Jump. Good, and here's a treat. OK, now come back here. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> that would have been awkward. Okay, now. 
Now, I'm, here, let's imagine the jump is right here. Okay, now this time, I'm just going to stand back here, and I've taught you to go over the jump because I've given you a treat each time you got on the other side of the jump. Now it's up to you. Here's the jump. Go over the jump. Okay, she's not actually a very intelligent horse because, <laughs> back up, she's a very good horse. Though. Turn around. Actually, she was smart enough to know what I wanted, but not smart enough to test me because if this is the, if this is the jump, Every time you got the treat, you got the treat for standing there on the other side of the jump. So the horse is going to get you on a technicality, right? It's going to say, technically, I'm doing exactly what you trained me to do, which is stand on the other side of the jump, because that's when you gave me the treat. So we need a way to decouple the delivery of the reward from the marker that says, that's what I'm giving you the treat for. And that's what clicker training is. Anybody use this? It feels like magic when you first use it. So it usually takes no more than one day, five minutes, ten minutes, um, for a dog or even a horse to learn to connect this to the treat. And this lets you separate them in time but have a very specific marker. Because I can't shove the treat. I mean, you can, you can pretty much shove the treat in the dog's mouth the moment they sit. It's much harder. And in fact, this, of course, evolved from training animals that you actually can't access that quickly. So um, since I can't shove the treat in your mouth when you're going over the jump, now I'm going to lead you over the jump and jump. So now in her mind, she knows exactly, and of course now you're patient, and because you know the reward's coming, give you the treat, and you know exactly what it was for. And they get so specific. I have one horse that he accidentally tripped going over a jump and had one leg up like this, and then for about a week, he just walked around like lame because he knew exactly, well, that's what you said. And, and since then, I've actually learned to use that to get very special behavior from him. Thank you to my horse. Okay. So there's amazing things that you can do. So again, the clicker, the clicker just lets you decouple treat delivery from the very specific mark. And the sound has very um, interesting properties to the animal. And so I'm going to throw these three out here. And if you click while I'm talking, um, Mark has a taser. <laughs> so, so there's a dark side. This is an actual balloon that people go up in. Anyway, there is a dark side, a big dark side, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. So the pr first problem with operant conditioning is that it's really fragile. It's very fragile in many, many ways as opposed to intrinsic motivation, which is incredibly strong and durable and robust, which is why that's the side that we want to be on, although it's going to get a little bit more involved in that. But operant conditioning, I mean, just one of the things they found, um, for example, I think it was IBM that did a study of um, rewarding people for interacting in an online forum, which, by the way, that's a really not good idea, but rewarding people for interacting in this online forum. And sure enough, no big surprise, they found that when they took the rewards away, people stopped interacting on the forum. And in fact, it got worse than it was before. And you'll see why that can be. Um, so it's fragile because you have to actually keep it going all the time. And if you stop, you're likely to get not only um, the pre-reward behavior, but possibly worse behavior and resentment. Second problem 
is that it is coercive. It's meant to be coercive. Now, that's why we use it. All these books, they're not a 100% operant conditioning, but at the core, that's mostly what we're talking about. That's mostly how these things are implemented. So this one I hear all the time. Well, yeah, but rewards, rewards don't make people do something that they wouldn't have already done. But that's, of course, not true. So if it's subconscious, which this, the rewards is a very powerful form of subconscious coercion. It can convince you that you wanted to do that thing. You wanted to interact with that. But we know that this is really, nobody's actually going to say this. So if we're engaging with brands because of their reward system, just think about that for a moment. Now, if you want to be absolutely certain just how far you are being manipulated, then either of those books is a, a, is a huge eye-opener into all the different ways that these things are subconsciously affecting them. So the Grumpy Cat has something to say about operant conditioning. So we have to be really careful about it. Now, if operant conditioning is over there, and, and now again, well, I'll come back to animals in a second, and intrinsic motivation is there, what do we do? Oh, excuse me, so this is the biggest problem. Operant conditioning actually can reduce or even kill intrinsic motivation. If it was there, or if there was a chance it could be there. So that's why I said rewarding people for engaging in an online forum could be a very dangerous thing to do, even though it might look like a flurry of engagement at the beginning, which is why this is so hard to overcome. It's because it's very counterintuitive that rewards can have this effect, but they can have a terrible effect. So, and you may have heard some of these stories, or you may have heard me mention some of these stories. Um, it all started with these monkeys that were playing with these wooden puzzles because they really enjoyed solving these wooden puzzles. So the researcher said, well, then let's give them their favorite treat after each puzzle they solve, and surely their puzzle solving will go up. And of course, their puzzle solving went down as a result, which of course made no sense, but these puzzles, they were intrinsically rewarding. That's why the monkeys were doing it. The kids who were drawing with the markers, when they were given a little ribbon for their you know, pictures, the, um, their interest in drawing went down, and their drawings became less interesting. It's happened with writers, it's happened with adults, it's happened with basically everything you can imagine. Hundreds of studies on this effect. So, if we don't want to use that, because we don't want those negative effects, what about dogs? Well, there's something really interesting with animal training, and especially dogs, and you will actually all recognize this. The reason it doesn't tend to have the same problems is because they're training us. So we're doing all this operant conditioning, right, which in theory should in some ways demotivate them for certain behaviors. But meanwhile, the dog is playing a very complex, intrinsically rewarding game, which is pushing all of your buttons to see which one will get you to deliver the treat. So they're actually training us to do exactly what we want. And think about babies, right? Babies are just operant conditioning machines. Now, are all rewards always bad? No, not all rewards. Um, the rewards that are particularly damaging are these plus R, positive reinforcement, you know, variable rewards. They're contingent on some behavior. If you do this thing, you'll get this reward. You may not get it every time, but if you do this thing, the reward will be coming based on something that we want you to do. 
So those are the kind that are dangerous. If you do, if you do something like reward your um, customers just out of the blue with a special thank you gift that they weren't expecting, that wasn't a reward for a specific behavior that they knew was coming, those are awesome and they don't have any of the negative side effects. They're fantastic. Same with employees, same with anything. So, well then what do we have? We can't use that. What about things that are not or never will be intrinsically rewarding? The drudge work. Well then it is possible that we can, um, go back to that. It is possible that we can use plus R for things that are very short term. We're never going to ask that person to do this for long term. We don't need it to be durable. We don't need it to be robust. We just need them to actually do it in the short term. Then it's possible. But what if we want it to be long term, but it's still not something that's intrinsically rewarding. It's never going to be fun to do on its own. So that leaves us with self-determination theory. And what self-determination theory tells us is that it's not a, you know, external consequences, extrinsic motivation on that side, intrinsic motivation on this side. It's a continuum, and in fact, it looks like this. So intrinsic motivation is on the right, and that means that they're motivated because this thing over here is rewarding for its own sake. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It's something that the person really wants to do. It feels great to do it, not for any external consequence. Now, if someone says, yeah, but I really want to do it because I get my name on the leaderboard, chances are that's an external reason. Would they still do it if the leaderboard went away? Then it wasn't rewarding on its own. It was rewarding because of this external thing. So intrinsic motivation means it might be aided by other things happening, but intrinsic motivation means it's so rewarding on its own, you'd do it anyway. Now, the self-determination theory continuum has four kinds of extrinsic motivation. We don't care about those labels. What we care about is that there are two parts. So we have the bad part over there. And then we have something interesting right there. This is what we care about. This is the kind of motivation that makes athletes, you know, not go to the party the night before the game when they really wanted to. They did the hard thing. They run, at, you know, because of their other sport, and they don't like running, but they do it because they have to. There's so much that we have to do that's not intrinsically motivating, but we need to do it. So how do we motivate for that without using operant conditioning? So these are the ones we care about because these are the ones that are strong. That's the kind of motivation that's really powerful and strong. So two forms of intrinsically rewarding experiences, high res and flow. And those are concerned with the context. So flow is the ability, or excuse me, high res is the ability to have these deeper, richer experiences. You know more, you see more, you feel more, you hear more. The ability to make finer distinctions is inherently really pleasurable to the brain. So it's different from just you learned more facts. It's learning to perceive more on a specific thing or a specific domain. That's what's powerful, making finer distinctions. This guy hears more in the music. This guy looks at the code and suddenly something happens, something magical happens. And actually, um, I have to interrupt for just one second. I'm about to, like, 
pass out from jet lag. Can someone bring me a chair? I'm really sorry. All right. So seeing something in the code that other people don't see. Who knows what this picture is? Does anyone recognize it? What is it? Excellent. Thank you. Sorry. Okay, so you have higher resolution for Cambridge. You can see things that other people don't, and you probably know what part is this. What's this? Great, so you have higher resolution for these things. And you might have higher resolution for architecture. This is uh, the movie Sideways. <laughs> um, so anyway, this is the... <laughs> Click? Okay, so um, this is wine, right? So they claim to be able to have this deep, rich experience with wine. But in the United States, at the last business of software, we saw that Mark has a one-bit relationship to wine. It's either red or white. There is no finer distinction. But he has an eight-bit resolution. This is something he actually told the American audience. He has a higher resolution for understanding uh, geography. And six, four bit resolution for those shirts. <laughs> very, very high definition. So that's high resolution. And it's inherently pleasurable. That's intrinsically rewarding. Flow, I'm sure you're all familiar with because you've all experienced it. And flow is when you're really in your element. That's how people describe it. I highly suggest that book. It's worth the read if you haven't read it. It's worth the read. And it is the, it's the manual that was used by Virgin Games when I first started there as a game developer. And it really means that there's a careful balance between challenge and ability. And if that happens, then there's a chance for flow to happen. So it's one of the most pleasurable states that people can ever have. In fact, the flow state, there is no negative flow state. There's always a good state, because suddenly all the judgment, all the worries, goes away, you are just in. So anytime we can help people be in that state while they're doing something, that's motivating in so many ways. So what breaks flow? You're in flow, you're just in it, you're in the zone. The UI is not getting in your way because you're just doing it. And then, <laughs> that breaks flow. So anything that takes you out of the experience is breaking flow. Anytime that the person becomes aware of what they're actually doing, breaks flow. Or how long they've been at it, those are the kinds of things that break flow. So obviously, um, UI and UX designers use this a lot. They think about this. So intrinsically rewarding experiences, high res and flow, those are things that we'd like to give people. And now I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this, and we're going to do it, and I'm going to do it sitting down, but you guys are going to do it standing up. This is a way to have an intrinsically rewarding experience um, in, well, we'll do it in less than one minute. So, if you're familiar with Amy Cuddy's research from Harvard, it's that um, you can change your body position and increase your testosterone, lower your cortisol levels in, well, less than two minutes. And in fact, if we decided to draw all of your blood, besides that would be awful, um, but we could prove it. But I'll just take your word for it. So. What we want to do is you want to think about adopting a superhero pose, and I'm actually going to make you all do it. So, um, Because believe me, Mark will ask you to do it again later. Um, so what I want you to do is think about whatever superhero pose you could do 
right? Whether it's just, you know, arms out, powerful, Superman, Wonder Woman, whatever it is. And I want you to stand up right now. Otherwise, your the shock in your seats will go off. I'm only going to ask you to hold this for like, you know, 30 seconds. So. <laughs> and adopt the pose, whatever it is. Big, expansive, superhero pose. Uh, not yet, not because he stopped. <laughs> okay. So, how many of you are familiar with Amy Cuddy's work? Man, I really suggest that you go look it up because it will shock you. Or you can watch her TED Talk um, in ways that they have used this. That you do this and then you go into your interview. So people who are doing job interviews, they would do their power pose for two minutes, go into a job interview, and the interviewer would have a more positive experience with them. But this is what's interesting. They weren't doing the power pose at the time they were doing the interview. They were still living off the effect of the power pose <laughs> earlier. There's all sorts of things that happen. It's really interesting. But it's an intrinsically rewarding experience. It's just that it's really a tiny one. So not everything can be intrinsically rewarding. We know this. So those things are already really motivating. These things are not, but they still have to happen. And we have to help our users do this. So to get into intrinsically rewarding experiences, there has to be ability. To do the hard things, there has to be willpower. But of course, they both take both. Willpower and ability. Everything that we're doing needs to focus on helping our users have willpower and ability. And there's one really important weird trick, and you won't believe what happens, that we can do. So the user's journey takes willpower and ability. If they stop, it's because they perceive that they've, they, they don't have enough ability, and they don't have enough willpower to stick it out. So if we can bring those up, we have a much greater chance of keeping them going, or for you to keep going at something that you may have tried and stopped and tried and stopped. So willpower and ability. Because that side of the continuum is the durable, long-term, robust side. That's the side we want. And it takes willpower and ability. So what do we do to get willpower and ability? Okay, here's another study. I won't ask you to actually do it, but I'll pretend that I'm doing it. And most of you, I'm sure, have seen this. I will remind you. So imagine I took this half of the room and I gave you a two-digit number to memorize. Simple task. Two digits. Seven digits over here. I give you guys a seven-digit number to memorize. That's it. Now, after the um, experiment, right, the researcher comes in and says, okay, the experiment is over, but of course it's not over. And you walk out to do your processing, and then the researcher says, would you like a snack before you leave? And offers you a choice of fruit or cake. Fruit or cake. What happens is, you guys with the two digits, you were picking the fruit. You guys, picking the cake. You guys were more likely to choose cake than fruit. Now, at first they thought, well, maybe this is related to just, you know, the brain just worked harder and needed more glucose in the brain. And that's partly true. But then it became so much more interesting than that. Here's another study. They took dogs. This dog had to wait in the crate for 10 minutes. 
This dog had to sit for 10 minutes. They did it with all kinds of dogs, all kinds of breeds. After the 10 minutes, remember, he's in the crate. He just has to sit. That's all. Not anything else. Just sit. After that, they release the dogs, and they get to play with their favorite, you know, treat puzzle. But the dogs that had to sit spent only half the time before they gave up. So just being obedient. Think about your poor Sparky. Just being obedient. Zapped their willpower to work on the treat, but they actually wanted the treat, so it zapped their cognitive resources. And if you think about a bad UI, it's demanding people to do things that are more difficult. Here's seven digits, here's two digits. And just for a second, think about this. Seven digits overwhelmed their cognitive resources. That's not a lot of numbers. It takes so little to overwhelm cognitive resources, cause them to choose cake. So this is a problem <laughs> if you have a difficult piece of software. Now, this is what's interesting, though. It's all one tank. Willpower, cognitive resources, it's one pool. It's not like when we used to think of things like, well, this guy just has more character, right? He has more grit. And he may have more strategies for maintaining his willpower, but it is all one tank. So what you deplete over here hurts you over here. If you deal with angry customers all day, you're going to write terrible code after that. If you write really intense, difficult code, even if you loved every moment of it, you're going to eat the wrong things later. It's, it's one tank. So if we need to build up motivation, or if we need to build up motivation, we need to have willpower and ability for the right kinds of motivation. We need cognitive resources. That means we need our users to have cognitive resources. That means our entire job should be reducing cognitive leads. And in fact, if there was just one thing that you remembered from this, it would be that. Reduce cognitive leaks. Everywhere, reduce cognitive leaks. And remember, sometimes just telling someone, yeah, you know what, you're right, this is hard. Already, I've taken away a huge leak because all the stress of worrying that I'm an idiot on top of the fact that this is hard, right, you've just now made that easier. So the user's journey takes willpower and ability, so we have to manage cognitive resources. That's our job. And remember, it's not just the tool. Because you can say, well, our tool's easy. But if you want the user to keep going and be successful, your job is to help them with what they're using the tool to do. And that is probably where the real challenge is. So we need to help them reduce cognitive leaks. So simplest way, how many of you have read Don Norman? Design of everyday things. Okay, great. So he calls it knowledge in the world versus knowledge in the head. So if you have to have something in your head to use this piece of software, that takes more cognitive resources than if it's already just out there and explains itself. So for example, the stereo on the top, everything is visible. It says what it does. You don't have to remember anything. It doesn't have complicated modes. That is knowledge in the world. The one on the bottom requires knowledge in the head. And even then, I can't get that stereo to work correctly. So that is a huge leap. So reduce cognitive leaks by putting usability in the world wherever you can. So this is the... What do you call it? A cooker? The stovetop? These dials map to the burners. No problem. You know exactly what burner, what control controls what burner. But this is what they usually look like. And you can have the same stove for years and still go, wait, which one is it? 
So this is much better, but this could also have a little indicator to show which one. And in fact, I have a stove that had that, but of course they all wore off, the little indicators wore off. This is the, this is a real example. <laughs> this is actually true. Think about that. Just think about that. Which tire? Now, it's, it's not, it's, it's bad enough that you have no idea, but now you use more cognitive resources trying to figure out there must have been a rule that other people know, right? You start from the front left or what, you know. I mean, so all sorts of bad things are happening. We all think that choice is awesome, right? Give the user lots and lots of choices. But we know that this is not actually what they feel when they're confronted by choices. This is what they feel when they're confronted with choices. Because even after they make the choice, it's still stressful. They're still leaking resources. So it doesn't mean that you don't give them choices, but you don't force them to make those choices. So if they have trusted filters and defaults, it's a huge benefit. And we also have micro-leaks. Micro-leaks are just the tiny little things that add up that you worry about. I turned off the oven, right? I did switch my phone to airplane mode, right? It's not going to actually buzz while I'm in the theater, right? So death by um, a thousand cognitive micro-leaks. This is Micro-Interactions by Dan Saffer. Any of you read that? It's a really great book. And it's actually not about closing cognitive leaks. I mean, that wasn't its intention. It's about making all those little things, helping users with all those little things to help delight them. But it's actually closing cognitive micro-leaks. It's a great UI book. And the main one is reduce the need for willpower. If you want them to be smarter, don't make them use willpower. Because if they're using their willpower, you're also decreasing their cognitive resources to actually learn and get better and do more. So we have to think about that. It's zero sum. Take it from one place. You take it from everywhere. The problem is we're competing against everything. Everything is zapping our users cognitive resources, which means everything is hurting their ability and their willpower, right? Everyone else. This isn't just about attention and time. This is about zapping their cognitive resources, including the whole internet. So the whole internet is your competition. This is not your competition in terms of them buying, right? They've already bought it. It's your competition in terms of do they even have the will to use it, let alone uh, you know, the, the functioning cognition. So, they're already struggling all the time. Now, this is, so, this is what's funny to me. How many of you use personas, develop personas to, uh, right, good, most of you. So, so often, personas are really interested in categorizing people and describing them and getting to know them so that we can sell to them. It's to get them down that funnel. And we work really hard, right? We A, B, test the shit out of this, crap out of this to get it to be like one pixel over and suddenly, you know, conversion rates. Well, what are we doing when we're doing that? We're designing for their cognitive resources, right? We want to strip out every possible impediment so that they can click the buy button or the subscribe or the join or whatever, right? And then the minute they do, we don't, usually A-B test the crap out of every little pixel on the actual interface or our support. 
or our FAQs or whatever it might be. So we're all about reducing cognitive resources to get them to buy, and then we just forget. So those personas, those personas talk about what that person is like, and it doesn't stop when they actually start using the software. So we might say something like, oh, busy mom, right, or really stressed out guy. But then somehow we believe that as soon as they sit down to use the software, everything in their world is awesome. Now that they've bought, they're just, all that persona stuff just goes away. It doesn't matter how busy they are because now, ah. And yet, they come into this with all of those problems. So we act like this is our user at the time they're using the software, right? Look, moving is one of the most stressful things, but look, he's happy, right? He's not losing cognitive resources here. And if he gets stressed, he gets a massage. This is his cute cat. This cute baby, right? This is who we appear to write our software for at the time they're using it. So, we create personas so that we can sell to the busy, stressed person, and then we write software as though suddenly they have morphed into a stock photography model. In fact, this guy's not real. His life is not so good because his wife actually has a whole other family. <laughs> This is his cat. <laughs> That's his baby. This is who our user actually is. And the chance of this being your user is equal to this is your customer service rep <laughs> standing by for your phone. So we have to not treat our actual users like they have a stock photography life because they need those cognitive resources, not just for while they're using your software, for the rest of, of, of your life. So if you help them even one tiny bit managing their cognitive resources, you may have given them just a few more moments to have the energy to deal with their kids at home or their more angry customers, whatever it might be. So don't treat them like that. Treat them like real people <laughs> with actual cats. They don't need you to be perfect. They don't need you to, to convince them that it's easy. They need you to just tell them that you understand. This is just how it is. They need you to be honest. Now, I'm going to end the way I always end. What you people are doing in this room, um, you're increasing the ability for people to have flow experiences. You're increasing the ability um, for people to have higher resolution experiences, which means you're actually increasing the resolution of the real world. And by helping them conserve their cognitive resources, you are helping them have a little bit better life. And I am proud to be here and be a part of this. Thank you. enjoyed that, we certainly did. Um, for more talks from Business Software Conference and other BLN events, visit theblm.com or come to our next event. You'll love it as much as we do.